Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Well, as Daniel mentioned, this is the first Sunday of Lent, and our Lenten journey began uh, this past Wednesday as we received ashes, Uh, we confessed our sin, and we committed to a fast. And uh, just a little bit about the Lenten season. This season is is really where we live into uh, a few different tensions. Uh, One of those tensions is during the Lenten season, we recognize intentionally our own mortality. uh, But because of resurrection hope, we do not stand in fear of death. Uh, We're also reminded during this season of our own sinfulness, but we also recognize the, uh, the deep grace and forgiveness that is available to us in Christ. And we lament all the things that are wrong with the world and with our own lives while holding on to hope that one day all things shall be made new. Uh, and so I invite you kind of into this season of intentionality uh, to these practices um, that, are, that are really brought, to these, these realities are reminded for us through the practices of confession and lament and fasting. And so I just encourage you to consider participating in those practices as we await the joyous celebration of Easter. And so uh, our text for this morning is found in Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 through 13. I invite you to turn there or click there or look there. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, And uh, let's look at God's Word together. Uh, Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 and reading through verse 13, says this. "Uh, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Uh, He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, It will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil then led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered, It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, when the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, In thinking about how to approach uh, this passage, I ultimately decided that uh, we could look at each temptation and then try to discover the ways in which we are tempted in the same ways. Uh, Now, not with the same things. Um, I don't know about you, but I've never been Uh, looked at a rock and been tempted to turn it into bread. That's kind of out of the scope of possibility for me. Uh, So that's something I've not been ever tempted to do. Uh, So maybe not tempted in the same, uh, by the same things, but tempted in the same ways. And so I want to try to to discover this morning how these temptations, which maybe seem pretty far removed from the temptations you and I may face day to day, actually intersect with our lives and connect with our lives. And so in the first temptation, the devil comes to Jesus uh, with the temptation to turn stone into bread. Uh, and this is after Jesus has had a 40-day fast, and we learn uh, something that uh, is rather fairly obvious, but there in the text, Jesus was hungry. <laughs> 
To which I want to say, yeah, <laughs> that's right. He was hungry. Uh, and on the surface, this certainly doesn't sound like anything particularly bad or sinister because uh, certainly there's nothing bad about bread uh, unless you're gluten-free, and then there's nothing bad about gluten-free bread. Uh, so there's nothing inherently wrong about bread in and of itself. And it would certainly, by turning this stone into bread, would certainly meet, be meeting a need. Uh, and so on the surface, this seems kind of like, what is going on? This, this, is, this is no temptation at all, really. This certainly isn't bad or sinister in any way. Uh, but beneath the surface, uh, what we find is uh, this temptation has everything to do with how Jesus will use his power. Uh, now, Jesus possesses power, certainly we know that, but the question is, what kind of power and how will that power be used? Uh, and coincidentally enough, um, the, the resurgence or the, the, the rise of superhero movies uh, this has been a common question that superhero movies deal with. Uh, here's this character with all kinds of power. What kind of power will they display, and, and how will they use that power, right? Uh, I think it's Spider-Man that is famous for saying, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Um, and, and so our culture is actually dealing with this question in, in, a, in a pretty unique way through the telling of these, these superhero narratives. Um, uh, for example, um, actually in, one, in the modern Superhan, super, not Superham, but Superman movies, um, that might, might be interesting, but uh, in the Superman movies, uh, Superman is presented as a Messiah figure. Have you, have you seen these movies? Uh, Superman is presented very explicitly as this Messiah kind of figure. Uh, and actually, why not? I mean, Superman looks like a human being, but actually isn't. Uh, behind the human veneer, he has the power to do whatever he wants uh, that would serve whatever ends that he deems righteous. Uh, and so people worship him as a God who is the hope for humanity. Uh, now, we'll, he certainly has a good heart. Let's give Superman that credit. Uh, but largely what he does is he then exercises the same kind of power as any foe, but to a greater degree. So, for example, the, the foe has muscles, but Superman's are bigger, right? Uh, or the foe has tricks, but Superman can freeze air with his breath, right? So it's kind of like, whatever tricks you have, mine are better, right? Uh, that was supposed to be a little bit funny, but that's okay. I, all, I recognize you've, you're lo you've lost an hour of sleep, so... Uh, Superman wins battles by virtue of being better than his foe, but on the same terms. You with me? Um, now, here's the temptation. The temptation for us is to think of Jesus as a kind of Superman. One who possesses great power, but that in the end will use all the same means to bring about a better end. But, but I think it's important for us to understand that the New Testament does not paint Jesus as, as a Superman at all. <laughs> In fact, the New Testament is very clear to not paint Jesus as sort of this person who is stronger than you or this or that, but rather what the New Testament picture of Jesus is not that of a Superman, but that of a God-man. And what this God-man does as fully human and fully God is he is God-made flesh and reveals to us the kind of God the Creator actually is. 
And so when, if we understand Jesus not as kind of a Superman figure, like Jesus is the ultimate superhero, but Jesus as the God-man, fully God, fully human, and therefore reveals to us what God is like, then how this question is answered, what is he going to do with his power, becomes really, really important. Are you with me? Now, he's, uh, he's the one who will use his power, what we learn, in humble service to others and in self-sacrificial love. Uh, that he refuses to use his power to serve self. And so Jesus resisting the temptation to turn stones into bread was actually him resisting the temptation to use his power to serve himself. Because what do we learn? Later, Jesus will use his power to make some bread. <laughs> right? He'll start with... Uh, loaves and fishes, and then feed 5,000. And so it isn't that the, the bread is inherently wrong, and so, oh, I need to not do that, but rather it's there, this question of, I, pos- I possess this power, Jesus has this power, then how then is he going to utilize that power? And the overwhelming answer that the New Testament gives us as it bears witness to the life of Christ is that Jesus refuses over and over and over again to use this power to serve himself, but rather does it in humble service to others. And so the first of the three temptations becomes a demonstration for us of the Jesus way of orientation toward others. And this is, where, this is how the temptation intersects with our real life, with our everyday life. Uh, that we may not be taken into the wilderness to meet with the devil. <laughs> uh, but every one of us will certainly face the temptation to use our own power and privilege for ourselves rather than for others. Um, and, and some of you might say, oh, well, I don't have any power. Um, to which I would want to say that the measure of power that each of us is given is certainly different. Uh, but the point is not the amount of power. The point is how you use the power that you have. Um, another way of thinking about power is maybe even privilege. We might use that word. Like, uh, what, what, how do we use the privilege that we have? Because what we see in Jesus is we see, what we see in Jesus, we see in our own lives that the temptation to use whatever power we do possess and whatever privilege we do have to, to serve ourselves is very, very strong. And so the invitation for us, and this is modeled by Jesus, is then to use that not for ourselves or for our own benefit, but for the riot, for the, in, order, in order to serve others. Uh, which is to say that the first temptation really demonstrates to us that uh, there's an invitation to rise above the typical narratives of power and display Jesus-like power by serving others. <laughs> I want to tell you a story about a time where um, I felt like that, this, uh, that I was challenged by this like face-to-face. I was sharing a meal with uh, someone who, uh, by all accounts, was um, in a group that has largely been oppressed and uh, hated by any number of people. And here I am, a a white, middle-class, straight male, 
Like the, like the chair I sit in is privilege, right? I mean, it's just like, it's like I, I am in the most privileged position uh, in our culture. And I, and I think, first of all, we need to have awareness of that, right? Uh, and, and so I asked this person, I said, um, and I don't even know, I'll, I'll tell you how I asked it, and I don't know if I framed it correctly, but it, it was just in the moment, and, and this is how I asked it. So um, I said, what, what would someone in your position want from someone in my position? And, and the heart of my question was, what would someone uh, who has largely been uh, unloved, uh, uh, t- torn down, looked down upon, all of these kinds of things. What would someone in your position want from someone in my position, which has been nothing but, but in a privileged position my entire life? And this person said to me, um, to risk your power and privilege uh, to speak for people in my group. Um, those are some of the most challenging words I've ever heard. Uh, but some of the most that I think were the most Jesus-like. <laughs> what would someone in your position want or need from someone in my position to risk your power and privilege and give it away to someone else? And so I, I want us to see the first temptation, not just simply as, oh, like a weird thing about bread that Jesus used Scripture to refuse. <laughs> Yay, Jesus. <laughs> but, but rather to see sort of the undertones like, of, of what's happening, that this is really a question about how Jesus is going to use his power. And the overwhelming message is that to walk in the Jesus way is to give that away, or at least use it to serve other people. Uh, and that's not saying you can't, you know, like, have some stuff, or be comfortable. Let's not say any of that, but there is to, this orientation toward others, um, I think, is the key thing. Well, in the second temptation, the devil offers Jesus all the kingdoms uh, of the world if Jesus would simply bow down to the devil. Uh, now, the first question that always comes up, uh, and this is told in a number of the Gospels, and it's told in a little bit different way, and Luke actually makes this a little bit clearer than some of the other Gospel writers, but the first question that always comes up is, what right does the devil have to offer these kingdoms to Jesus? Uh, they aren't really his to begin with, right? Uh, and, and to help us kind of understand or get some framework or to orient ourselves to answer that question, uh, I want us to think about when Jesus was before Pilate. Uh, do you remember this? Or maybe you've heard this story. Uh, Jesus is before Pilate, just before he is crucified, and, and Pilate is asking him all these questions. And, and one of the questions that, that Pilate asks is he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, uh, just like this genius, brilliant response. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, if my kingdom were for the, from this world, then people would be fighting to try to defend me. <laughs> there would be an uprising to try to come to my aid, but my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, now, Jesus talking about, when Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world, he's not talking about the location of his kingdom. Right? Sometimes we tend to think, oh, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, so it's located somewhere else. Well, that doesn't mesh with the rest of the message of Jesus when he prays that our, his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And, he comes, and actually, he begins his ministry by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Right? 
And so this understanding of location actually misses the point. Jesus is not talking about the location of his kingdom, but rather he's talking about the animating power behind his kingdom. You with me? Uh, Think of it this way. In other words, what characteristic does his kingdom take on? Is it animated by the devil? The Greek word here literally means accuser. So is his kingdom animated by the accuser, or is it animated by God, who is revealed in Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace? Which answers at least some of the question as to why Jesus said, listen, if my kingdom were of this world, there'd be an uprising to come to my defense. But I am the Prince of Peace. Here's the point that I'm trying to get at. Uh, There are plenty of kingdoms throughout history and today that have been more animated by the accuser than by God. And and so empires can take on a decidedly anti-Christ tone in their oppression of people groups, in their unfettered commitment to violence, in their unforgiving postures. I mean, there's all sorts of things that that are of the accuser that are animating different nations and empires throughout history and throughout today. And so we could say, I think with some degree of accuracy, that the accuser has plenty of kingdoms under his charge. And so then we get to the real point. The temptation for Jesus is to be given all of these kingdoms simply by bowing down to the accuser, to the enemy, to the devil. You might say it this way, the devil makes Jesus an offer. All these kingdoms would be yours if you would give up the way of your kingdom and just kind of fold in to the way of my kingdom. Now, before we see this as too far-fetched, it's important to understand that this is, in fact, Jesus' goal. (laughs) The goal is to establish his kingdom on earth, right? He begins his ministry with the announcement that the kingdom of God has arrived. He teaches his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth. I mean, one of Jesus' main goals, if we're reading the Gospels correctly, is to establish a kingdom. And here the devil offers him a shortcut. I'll give you all these kingdoms if you just bow down to me. Simple as that. Certainly we can confess that the kingdom of Jesus would be a good thing. And so the core temptation is, will Jesus submit to the ruler of this world in order to achieve good for the people of this world? Or to frame it another way, and I think this gets more to the point, does the means justify the end? That's the core question. That's the key question honing in on the second temptation. Because again, Jesus' goal is ultimately to establish his kingdom on earth. Now some kingdoms, empires, nations are being animated by the ways of the accuser. And so the accuser says, hey, listen, if you just like allow this kind of thing to continue, I'll make you king. <laughs> Does the means justify the end? And for, again, the answer for Jesus, the answer must be no, no, no. Because Jesus knows that to give in to this temptation would be to sacrifice principle for political gain. And he isn't willing to do it. Jesus knows that to do this would be to sacrifice principle for political gain and he isn't willing to do it. Because for Jesus, 
The means are the ends. Yes, Jesus will become the world's true Lord. He will establish his kingdom on all of the earth. That is and will, is, is going to happen. And it begins in Jesus. So he will become the world's true Lord. But how that status comes about is of utmost importance. Are you with me? So it isn't just that Jesus will become the world's true Lord. It's how he will become the world's true Lord that reveals him as Messiah. This ties into the first temptation about how power is used. Is it just kind of power, but just recycled, all the same kinds of power? Or is it a different kind of power that Jesus is displaying? In fact, we might be able to say, if we connect these two ideas, that true power is found in humble service and self-sacrificial love. That that's where the power is at. (laughs) Now, Jesus' response, his rebuttal, his calling on the word of God is simply, is, is essentially reveals that to give in to this temptation, to give in to this temptation to justify uh, the, the means because of the end would in fact be idolatrous. Uh, look at his response to the second temptation. It is said, he, Jesus says, in response to this temptation, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so he recognizes that what's at stake here is idolatry. That in order to sacrifice principle for political gain would be to bow at the altar of power instead of at the throne of God. (laughs) And so Jesus answers, no, I cannot do this. And I don't want to do a lot of um, exploring of implications here. I like my job (laughs) and I want to keep it. So, but, but I think it would be good for the modern evangelical church would do well to reflect prayerfully and carefully on this temptation. Because I think there's probably been any number of times throughout history and certainly in recent days where the church has justified the means in order to reach a particular end. And for Jesus and his people, it isn't just that we do something, it is how we do it. How we accomplish something is as important as what we accomplish. Do you hear that and do you believe it? (laughs) How we accomplish something is as important as what we accomplish. This is the entire narrative of the second temptation. My prayer would be, Lord, have mercy as we work this out in the broader church. Now, the third temptation. Are we having fun? (laughs) The third temptation is this. The accuser tempts Jesus to throw himself off of the temple and have the angels rescue him. Uh, I would be willing to bet that none of you have been tempted in this way. (laughs) But let's connect it to our real life. This temptation, this is a temptation to become spectacular in order to gain a following. Uh, You see, even in a world before social media, there was celebrity. And there was the desire to be amazing in order to gather a crowd. I want to to say that again. That even before social media, there was celebrity. And there was this temptation, this desire to be amazing in order to gather a crowd. And so let's 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 put ourselves in Jesus' shoes for a moment. Let's say we're doing the important work of trying to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 
Hmm, that sounds familiar. That was Jesus' message and, and mission, and he gave it to the church, <laughs> right? So we also are kind of on a mission to embody, to proclaim the reality of God's kingdom here on earth. Now, we can't physically build it ourselves. That's the work of God, but we participate in the work of God in what he is doing. And so guess what? We are tempted in the same way. So Jesus is there. He's doing the important work of proclaiming and establishing and demonstrating God's kingdom. How tempting it would be to do something spectacular in order to gain an instant following, right? Let's do something crazy that will get people's attention, and then that'll just, it'll, it'll be okay, because then we can tell them about Jesus. <laughs> but again, Jesus refuses. And this time he reminds the accuser that the Lord is not, put to the, is not to be put to the test, which is a way of saying, and I want you to hear this, which is a way of saying that the results are up to God. The results are up to God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The results are up to God. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, what about Jesus' miracles? Yes, Jesus did miracles, many miracles during his ministry, and plenty of crowds gathered around him, but he never performed miracles for spectacle's sake. In fact, after some miracles, he would say, hey, don't tell anybody about this. <laughs> right? I mean, he was constantly trying to avoid gathering, making a spectacle of himself. And so he'd do something. So, so what, his, what his miracles were doing is they were always for the purpose of giving life and strength. And they were never performed as just cheap tricks. And as we go about the work of, of proclaiming and demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of God, here's the truth that we need to face. The church has often been tempted toward the gimmicky in order to draw a crowd. <laughs> There was a pastor in Florida who was doing a series uh, on doing the impossible. Uh, so in order to illustrate, uh, in one of his sermons, he teamed up uh, with a Hollywood stunt crew. Uh, and then he entered a car that was then blown up. But the pastor emerged unscathed. He did the impossible. And you should too. <laughs> I, should I tell the story again? Because it's pretty out there, right? Like, I'm just feeling like you're not really with me here. So let me tell you again. There's a pastor in Florida who was doing a series on doing the impossible. So to illustrate, he got into a car. The car blew up, and he got out unscathed. Oh, what? That's impossible, right? And you should go and do that too, right? So, so it's like trying to create this giant spectacle uh, in order to gain a following. There's a church in North Carolina that one Easter, as they were preparing for their Easter services and to try to draw a crowd, literally rented a helicopter, filled the entire cabin with Easter eggs, flew it over a football field, and dropped the Easter eggs to the pandemonium of all the children, right? That's a real story. Again, I just don't feel like you're quite with me here. That's a real story. Easter, helicopter, dropping Easter eggs. This is not an Easter egg hunt. This is an Easter egg attack, right? In order to draw a crowd and get people there, at a church in Kansas, the VBS had, de had a detective slash CIA theme called J-Force. And so the volunteers, in order to take on the detective CIA theme, repelled from the ceiling during the, like, down to the platform each night as the service began. That was amazing. I know because 
We did it. <laughs> Amy and I were just college kids. You know, they do crazy stuff. All this stuff is done to try and draw a crowd and amaze them with the spectacular in order to draw them into Jesus. And here's what I want to say to the church. Our job is, and our role is not to be spectacular or amazing or awesome or cool. Our role is to be faithful to the calling of God and leave the results up to Him. It is not our role to be spectacular, look at us, hey, just to gain a following. Our role is to be faithful to the calling of God. And I got to tell you, we've tried to take that seriously here at Emmaus and among our leadership. Um, we often have conversations about, it's not that we're against marketing and it's not that we're against church growth. We're not. We're, we're very much in favor of those things and we want to share and proclaim the name of Jesus and we want to see people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. But we, we have this thing where we believe that the best way to do that is just to be faithful to what God has called us to do and just try to avoid the spectacular just to draw a crowd. Um, we've tried to take cues from the life and the ministry and the temptations of Jesus that what you win people with is what you win people to. So if we create a, create a big entertainment show and we win people to the entertainment, then the, we have to continue to escalate the entertainment in order to keep them entertained. <laughs> but if we win them with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that's what we won them to, is discipleship. And so we try to take that seriously. And so as it turns out, these three temptations that seem really far removed from our own lives, I think have a lot to speak to us and a lot to challenge us with. How are we going to use the power in which we've been given? How are we, are we willing to justify the means because of the end? And are we tempted to be spectacular in order to gather a crowd? Or are we faithful to what God has called us to do? I'll close with this. Real temptation is, is often an offer to rise, not fall. <laughs> In other words, no tempter would, come, would approach a person with offers of personal, economic, and social ruin. <laughs> Sometimes the most sinister temptation is just attractive enough that we can justify it. Just like Jesus could in any one of these scenarios. That on the face of it, all good things, but done for the wrong reasons or in the wrong ways, and it becomes the most sinister of all. In fact, to frame all of these and kind of talk, to, talk about them as a collective whole, all of these temptations are for Jesus to short-circuit his vocation as Messiah. Um, that by following the temptation, he may get what he wants, but in a way that isn't consistent with the kind of kingdom he is establishing and the kind of Messiah that he is. And so the path that he takes to the Messiah 
counts and it matters. It isn't just that you become the Messiah, but what, what are the ways in which, what is the path that you're going to take in order to live more fully into that role is the, is the real question for Jesus in all of these. It's a temptation to short-circuit his role as Messiah. But the way that he does that is so important. To which I would say that the path we walk as his followers matters. Uh, that it isn't just about the ends, uh, but the means count. Because for Jesus, the means are the end. <laughs> if you take the wrong means, you'll get to the wrong end. And so we can't sep- so easily separate the two. Does that make sense? I think this is a, it's a good word. It's a necessary word. It's, it, it can be a challenging word, right? I mean, it can hit us in some wrong sp- spots. <laughs> Uh, it can be challenging, but I think it's one that we need to hear. And I think it's one that we need to wrestle with, uh, maybe not just in our personal lives, but in the corporate life of the church, the collectively the church. Uh, what does it mean to take these seriously and wrestle with, with them? Um, and so I invite you to do just that in this Lenten season, to uh, take these, consider them, and uh, see how the Holy Spirit would speak to your heart and into your mind. Uh, Well, let's say a word of prayer, and then I'll lead us to the table for communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for your graciousness toward us, uh, for your love for us. Thank you, God, that even in the times when we maybe mess up, we don't live this out perfectly, or, oh, man, we're more disciples of the world or culture or ourselves than we are of you. Thank you, God, for your unending grace. Um, that reaches out to us and calls us back. And I just pray, God, that as we consider these temptations that on the face of it don't seem that relevant, but once we understand them are so more relevant than we probably even would like. God, as we consider these, I, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts, uh, help us uh, to discern the ways in which maybe we're giving in to these temptations, maybe we need to depend more on the living Word of God, your Spirit that lives in us, the written Word of God that instructs us and shows us and bears witness uh, to your Holy Spirit. And so, God, in all these things, as we go about the work of just following you, we pray that you would be with us, um, both personally as we wrestle with these things, but also corporately as we as a church try to live into these realities as the uh, broader church uh, goes through so many shifts in today's world. Um, God, help us to know what it means to be your people in, in this time. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.